Well, friends, uh, we want to come now to uh, the hearing of God's Word. And you might open now to a book of the Bible you may not have uh, ever heard a sermon on before, uh, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. It's right after Ecclesiastes. Um, we A little bit of preface before we read the Word here. But we say that we believe that all Scripture is profitable for us, but do we really believe that? Uh, or do we write off parts of the Bible as not having anything applicable for us? Um, we're going to do a little bit of Song of Songs because today's world is very confused about many things, including love and marriage and intimacy. And uh, part of the problem is the church is known for having rules, um, but people don't know the bigger picture behind those rules, the why, uh, the, the broader picture, not just the little things, the rules, but the the trees, the forest and the trees. Why does the Bible affirm marriage between one man and one woman? And if the church doesn't proclaim what we believe about these things, we're leaving ourselves and our young people to the world's wisdom and the world's foolishness. Uh, so today I want to begin a short series going through this book called The Song of Solomon, also known for its first line, The Song of Songs. So I may refer to it as The Song of Songs more than, than The Song of Solomon. And I'll speak more about that in a few minutes, but just notice that in being named that, the Song of Songs, there's a hint here that this is about more than just a human relationship. This is about the love that God has for His church. And that means that there's something here for everyone, no matter where they are uh, in life and in relationships. And don't worry, the text itself is is discreet, and I'll... uh, Promise to be as discreet as the text itself as we go through this book. So turn in, if you want to follow along in your Bible, to the Song of Songs. It's poetry, but I want you to see there's also a story here. And uh, it's not a contrived structure that we've imposed on this book. You can't help but read this story, uh, read this book and this poem, and, and make some sense of the story. And one of the first explanations of this book I heard was from... Uh, one of my former teachers, Ian Duguid, who's a commentator as well. So I'm sure that what I'm presenting is going to be shaped by what he said in some ways. And one of the things he's presented is some of the structure and storyline here, that you can divide this book into really five stages at least. The first is the first spark of love. You have patience and longing in chapter 2 and 3. And then you have the wedding in the middle of the book, chapter 3, 4. You have conflict in the relationship, and then reaffirmation, and then at the end, of course, it ends with death, death doing part. Uh, And so I'm going to try to show you this in a survey fashion through a number of sermons, and today we want to cover this first chapter here. So if you're able to stand comfortably, please stand now as I read for us uh, Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. 
My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keepers of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna, blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Behold, you're beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. That is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask your blessing. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that it is one complete story from Genesis to Revelation and that it is all profitable and useful for teaching us that we might uh, be ready to serve you and to serve the neighbors that you've put into our paths. And we pray that you would bless the hearing of your word, that your spirit would give us illumination to understand your word and to understand how it applies to our lives. We pray for your blessing on this this time now, that you would bless us in a mighty way and that your name would be glorified, that you would be pleased. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, you might remember the story about the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Well, Philip uh, saw him reading an Isaiah scroll, and he asked the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? That's a good statement about what expository preaching is meant to do, Uh, but We feel similarly to that Ethiopian eunuch, don't we, when we come to books of the Bible, uh, like Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. I remember hearing someone humorously ask, does God know that this is in the Bible? Um, Clearly, this is a book about love, and it's about love that has different aspects. It's got human love and divine love. And we're going to see in the, uh, we're going to see an idealized human relationship here, a, a human couple. And their interactions are part of the biblical canon for us, the rule of faith and life. They're instructive for us as we live in a world that's very confused about these things, about love and sexuality. If the church is too timid to speak about these things, we shouldn't be surprised when our world speaks about it and gives us a perspective that glamorizes sin, that doesn't give us God's design. And because we all have disordered desires in various ways, this is a book for all of us, no matter where we are in life. Uh, Even if you're not in a human relationship, if you're single, if you're older, if you're too young, don't think there's nothing here for you, because this is called the Song of Songs. And when you think about the grammar of that, that is the Hebrew superlative, the way to express the greatest thing. In Hebrew, that's how you say, this is the best song. This is the song of songs. Like, 
The most holy place is the holy of holies in the Hebrew structuring. Or the king of kings is the greatest king. And so it would be strange if the song of all songs, the best song, was just about a human relationship and not about God and his love for his people. So clearly this is about God's love. And we see even in this idealized human relationship of one man and one woman that they're not satisfied even with that. That even with the best human relationship, you will not be satisfied in your soul without the love of God. And their relationship also takes place amidst sin. They're sinners. They live in a world uh, that is scarred by sin. While marriage points us to the gospel, according to Ephesians 5, which we read earlier, it's a shadow of the reality of the love that God has for His church and for each one of us as believers. You can have the best human relationship with another human being, and still your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in the love of God and in God Himself. Even the best marriage is not enough. Whereas if God's banner over you is love, then you can and will be satisfied. Even when your marriage isn't ideal or you're not in the relationship you want to be in. The song teaches us about something better than marriage, even though it's teaching us through a human marriage. You can't help but think about these things when you think about Ephesians 5. And I know we read it before in our service, but I want to read it again, at least in part. Uh, Ephesians 5, 29 through 33. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. Well, there, right there in Ephesians 5, you can see human love and divine love put right next to each other, that human love and relationship teaches us about the gospel. And Ephesians says, this is profound, and this is about Christ and the church. So think about that as we go through this book. And the first thing we want I want you to notice as we're going through this song is that this is a song. This is a song. It's one song. There's a reminder here that there's unity in this book. Some commentators and scholars see this just as a collection of random love poems. But this is one song, the song of songs. This is one story that's unified. And secondly, when it says that this is a song, we're reminded of what a song is and the nature of it. That it, This is a celebration. Yes, there are songs in the Bible that are dirges, that are sad, uh, but more prominently, songs are about things that are joyful. They're about things that we're celebrating, making us happy. Uh, some commentators suggest that this song was, that its original purpose was to be sung at weddings. And Jeremiah even talks about the voice of mirth and gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. And so when you see this is the song of songs, you realize this is telling us that human love is worth celebrating. That love, particularly in marriage, is worth celebrating. If you're a parent and you're wondering, how do I deal with this book of the Bible in family worship? Don't worry. There, there are truths here that are, should be sung about and celebrated. This is wisdom literature in the Bible. It's telling us what is 
good and wise. And right from the beginning, you can say it's wise to celebrate love, marital love and intimacy. These are good things, not realities that you have to uh, hide away and pretend that you don't think about. And see here the goodness of God. He gives us vibrant relationships, even physical pleasure. We have a God who exists in three persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have fellowship with one another. And this triune God has designed the most intimate relationship that human beings can have in marriage to be one of embracing an other, someone distinct from us, who's different from us. The Bible's positive about these things. And so from the very beginning, you can say that longing for love is affirmed here. It's rightly said the devil didn't give us desires for love, for fellowship, for relationship, though he, the devil often misdirects those longings. And furthermore, when we hear that this is a song, we should know that every part of life is spiritual. Every part of life is spiritual. Your service to the Lord includes spending time at home with your loved ones, gardening with neighbors, games with kids, kisses even to your husband or wife. We glorify God and enjoy Him even through these things. And here in chapter 1, notice words of affirmation. This can be done in service to the Lord. Look at verses 15 and 17. Behold, you're beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you're beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Now, as we go through this book, one of the things that you have to comment on is what to do with Solomon. Our, you know, you, you notice we have the biblical text here, but we also have headers that tell us various things. These are not inspired, as, as the text is. And the uninspired headings give this book the title, The Song of Solomon, because of the very first verse, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. But Solomon is not the first person that you think of when you think about an idealized marriage relationship between one man and one woman, an intimate monogamous marriage, and Solomon. They don't really mesh together. So I think it's best if we even refer to this as the Song of Songs rather than the Song of Solomon. You may notice that the book mentions Solomon various places, but when it mentions him, he's a distant, idealized figure. You might even think of him as a contrast in this book, an intentional contrast between the singular love between two people here because of his many wives, his harem, his many loves. So he's a contrast. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, it's, it's flexible in Hebrew. This could be a dedication to Solomon. In fact, that's what the Greek translation, the Septuagint, has. The Song of Songs, which is to Solomon. The only plausible explanation to me of Solomon's authorship is that he wrote this at the end of his life, repentant, as an act of contrition, saying this is what he wishes he had. That's the only way I, I think it works to have Solomon writing this. But the problem with that even is that it doesn't really fit with what the rest of the Bible says about Solomon, who was led astray by his many relationships. And the text itself distances Solomon from these lovers. Uh, chapter 8, the end of this book, 
The lovers are going to say, Solomon, he can keep everything he has. Our love is better. These lovers treasure their relationship more than whatever Solomon has. One scholar says, Solomon is an ideal figure whose name is invoked from time to time because of the rich connotations it has. He is a patron and symbol rather than a suitor. I hear that and my mind runs to uh, Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing and Claudio, who's this rich figure who's a patron of love, who facilitates the relationship that's going to develop there. So who then is the man and who is the woman in this story? Well, we don't know. And that's okay. They're not identified. Now, my wife and I, we just moved our home. And when you're buying homes, uh, I like unique homes that are a little different. But the thing about buying a, a unique home is that it doesn't appeal to everyone. Whereas if you have a more generic home that's not set up in any particular way, it will appeal to many people. And I think that's why we're not told the distinct identities of these, this man and this woman. It's meant to be generic so that it has universal appeal, so that we don't focus on who they are, but on their love and their relationship and their interactions and how it shows us the love of God. And so verse chapter 1 shows us the opening scenes in their attraction to one another. It begins with this mutual attraction. You have the, the classic story, girl likes boy. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Here, notice the nature of the attraction here. Uh, and young people should take note in what to look for in a potential suitor. Beauty is emphasized, but notice this. The young lady's greatest beauty is the beauty of her character and her virtues that shine. For her, love is not a game. It's not a series of flirtations that, like it was no doubt for many in the king's courts, She's fixed her heart on a young man who she sees as a king. And she longs for his embrace. And you'll notice that she doesn't do this just because he's dashing and handsome, but because of the quality of his character. She says, your name is like perfume poured out. She says, virgins love you. There's something about his character that's admired here. She says her beloved is like a sachet of myrrh to her. Now, these are the days when you didn't have deodorant that you applied every day uh, to make you smell good. In those days, ladies wore pendants around their necks with herbs inside to give that pleasant aroma. And she's saying that his presence with her is like that. It makes her better. And that's something helpful for you to consider. Does your love interest improve you? Do they, does this person encourage you to be the best person that you can be, to grow in your faith? If you're already married, you can say, do I seek to help my spouse grow in their faith, in their life? Well, here the guy returns her affection, but this is love in a fallen world. This is sinners who will eventually say, I do. And as kingly as the young man is, and his character even, We'll see next time he's, he's pressuring her. He's saying, the time is ripe for a physical relationship. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, come away, for behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. Chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And yet at the same time, he knows even then in his heart that the time isn't ripe. There are foxes to catch. 
who can interfere with the vineyard of their love. The time isn't right. And yet the story is going to move along in its progression. Chapter 4, uh, you might think of the references to Solomon's splendor at the end of chapter 3 as she's comparing this man to, to, to Solomon in his glory. You can read contrasts with Solomon as well with his many women. This kind of exclusive love is missing from his life. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 9, You've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. And then they have the wedding and consummation. Chapter 5, verse 1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And yet before we get to that day of marital bliss, we're back here at the beginning stages in chapter 1. And we're reminded here of the scars that we bear in this world and the obstacles to love, those things that would prevent a relationship from developing, that would ruin a relationship. Look at verses 5 and 6 of our chapter, chapter 1. She says, I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I've not kept. In other words, she's saying that she's been keeping the family fields. And that has ravaged the vineyard of her own beauty. She hasn't been able to live like Queen Esther, who enjoyed a year of beautifying herself with oil and myrrh and spices and ointments. She's saying that she is flawed, yet beautiful. Now, in this story, we're going to see that there's two individuals, these lovers, and we might think that they're completely lost in each other, that they're unaware of anyone else. But you see in this book that there are other people around them who help them or hurt them. We're going to see the women's brothers. You're going to see the watchmen of the city. You're going to see foxes and how they will foil the vineyard. You're going to hear about the daughters of Jerusalem, these other women, like those addressed here in verse 5, who see her flaws and might make her question what the man sees in her. She says her skin is darkened by the sun, and there's nothing racial about this at all. This is a symbol that she's not of the upper class. She's had to go out and work in the sun rather than those who would be pale because of their privilege. Yes, in those days, being tan was not a virtue. Uh, In fact, she's frustrated with her family in verse 6. They've insisted she tend the vineyard and it's had an effect on her skin. These are are symptoms of life in a fallen world. We, We doubt ourselves. We define ourselves by our outward appearance, by what people around us think about this. We know how that works. People will have us doubt ourselves to tell us that beauty is only skin deep. And her words make us ask this very important question. Can you be flawed and yet beautiful? Can you be scarred and yet loved? And the Bible's answer is, of course, a profound yes. The young lady in the song may have some questions about her beauty at the beginning of this chapter, but as the man compliments her, she gains confidence, leading to the beginning of chapter 2, which I read for us today, where she acknowledges 
what he's been saying about her. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. People say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and there is something to that in what happens here. The people that are around us that are important to us, we know that their perception of us shapes our identity and how we identify ourselves, our own self-perception. And that is a reminder for us to be loving to others in the way we speak to them about themselves. How to be careful in the words we speak, especially with those in our families, those who have a high opinion of us. But it's also a reminder that if God is the most important of our, most important person in our lives, we're going to let His perception of us shape our identity. Who, doesn't matter what the world thinks. If God loves you and cares for you, you are precious. So you can ask yourself, does God's opinion matter more to me than the opinions of others? We're each flawed in our own ways and yet beautiful in the eyes of our beholder, God himself. Ultimately, we've seen this is a song about Christ. And as we go on in this song and we see the love here, we should see the defects in our own loves. The love that we have for other human beings, how we shy away from people who may seem dark in the sense of the song, those who seem scarred by life under the sun. But more profoundly, as you go through this book, see the defects in your love for God. That we don't long for Him. That we don't hunger and thirst for Him as the deer pants for streams of water. Friends, do you see your own flaws this morning? Are you convicted of your sins? Not just things that are skin deep, but they're deeper than that. You are dark not because of the sun's rays, but because you have loved darkness rather than light. And yet, how wonderful that God is the God who shows grace and loves the unlovable. He loves us, though we are very dark in our sin and our folly. John Owen, who was a Puritan, uh, voiced how we often feel this way. He said, I fear Christ does not love me, that thou hast forsaken me because I know I deserve not to be beloved. These thoughts are hard as hell. They give no rest to my soul. But just as the scars on this young woman, the flaws in her complexion, don't turn the young man away, so too God covers over your imperfections with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You were ugly in your sin to a holy God. The horrors that Shelley's fictional Dr. Frankenstein felt when he made his creation, they pale, they're a pale shadow of the repulsion that a holy God should have towards you and me in our sin apart from Christ. And yet, in Christ, we are a bride, Ephesians 5 said, without spot or blemish in God's sight. Because Christ died to sanctify you, to cleanse you, to purify you. The king became a suffering servant who, Isaiah 53 will say, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But if you believe in him, 
He's given you His spotless righteousness. Now when the Father looks at you, He sees Christ's multifaceted beauty. I've had people tell me that they're not interested in this book, the Song of Songs. That it doesn't fit their phase of life. It's just not applicable to them. And that surprised me because ultimately this book is about the Gospel which transcends your specific circumstances. You need the Gospel every day no matter what your human relationships look like. And let me say, there may be some here today who have let the Gospel of God's love fade into the background of their thoughts. You don't hunger and thirst for God. You're unmoved by the way the song ends saying that love is stronger than death. The very flame of the Lord. So as you hear the beginning of this song, uh, the first spark of this relationship, remember your first spark. You may have been a Christian for a long time. You may be where the churches in Revelation 2 were when John wrote to them. Listen to what John said to them, or God says to them. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Isn't it striking there that we have to be told to remember the love that we used to have? Isn't that a reminder that your love fluctuates? Our love fluctuates. We're hot and we're cold. But God never has to be told to remember the love He had at first because His love, His zeal never fluctuates. His love never wanes, but it's as strong today as it is tomorrow as it was yesterday. And so as you hear that, ask yourself, have I abandoned the love that I had for God at first? The love that you had when you first understood the gospel, that He loves you in your sin while you were His enemy, Christ died for you. The Bible calls you now to return, to come back, to remember your first love, to remember that first spark like this book begins, let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. In our confused world, by the way, the song shows us the equality of men and women without undermining the leadership of the man in the relationship. The woman is active. Her voice here is valued. She's deeply valued, but so is he, and she wants him to kiss her. Let him kiss me. You may have been married for a long time, but remember that first spark. Titus 2, 3 and 4 tells older women to teach younger women to love their husbands. It's been said that this book is sort of the opposite. It's a young woman reminding older women to love their husbands as well. Uh, quote, that is, the song is like a splash of cold water that some of us old lovers need thrown in our faces. End quote. Don't let your love grow stale. And certainly that's true for marriages, but also it's true in your relationship with the Lord. And that leads to my final point today that as I close, the song encourages you to desire the Lord. He delights in you. Now, got my gold wedding ring on today and it has a Hebrew inscription on it from Isaiah 63, Hephetzbah in Hebrew. It means my delight is in her. 
Listen to that whole passage in Isaiah 62. God says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called. My delight is in her. Your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. As you hear that and you see the Song of Songs, let God's Word remind you that God delights in His bride, the church. God delights in you. Do you respond with delight in Him? The bride-to-be bride here delights in this man and in she returns his affection. Behold, verse 16, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. We should be glad that we have this book to spur us on in our delight in the Lord to see that marriage and marital intimacy point us to the gospel. This is in the Bible. This is part of our canon. One scholar, E.J. Young, says, quote, the song does celebrate the dignity and purity of human love, this is a fact which is not always sufficiently stressed. The song, therefore, is didactic and moral in its purpose. It comes to us in this world of sin, where lust and passion are on every hand, where fierce temptations assail us and try to turn us aside from the God-given standard of marriage. And it reminds us, in particularly beautiful fashion, how pure and noble true love is. This, however, does not exhaust the purpose of the book. Not only does it speak of the purity of human love, but by its very inclusion in the canon, it reminds us of a love that is purer than our own, end quote. So hear this song and remember that redemption, salvation, and love are intertwined. As the Puritan John Owen said, God loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us also into covenant. He loves us into heaven. Owen's take on the song is a bit fanciful, I think, but we should take to heart. He says, Jesus seeks his people as a lover seeks his beloved. This relationship includes pursuit and response. Friends, from heaven he came and sought you to be his holy bride and with his blood he bought you. How will you respond? Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in Your Word. Lord, there are parts of the Bible that are difficult for us to fathom and understand where we do feel like the Ethiopian eunuch saying, how can we understand this unless it's explained to us? Uh, so Lord, we pray that this explanation of the Song of Songs would bless Your people, that they would be able to say they understand the Song of Songs better. Uh, Lord, we pray that it would be a reminder to us that we should desire You uh, Lord, uh, as the deer pants for streams of water, our souls should pant for you. Lord God, uh, re renew that flame of fire in our zeal for you, that we would love you and delight in you who first loved us and gave Jesus Christ for our sins. We pray this in his name. Amen.